Hey, g'day one, g'day all, welcome to another episode of Strange Days Broadcast. Bit all over the place in this one, so we'll see where we go. Enjoy. Kick it off in about two minutes. Get into her, eh? Let's get into her. Hey. What have we got going here? Where are you, my little folder? Where are you, my darling? There you are. I see you. An open society. And we are, as a people, Inherently and historically, opposed to secret society, to secret oath, and to secret proceedings. We decided long ago that the dangers of excessive and unwarranted concealment of pertinent facts far outweigh the dangers which are cited to justify it. Even today, there is little value in opposing the threat of a closed society by imitating its arbitrary restrictions. Even today, there is little value in ensuring the survival of our nation if our traditions do not survive with it. And there is very grave danger that an announced need for increased security will be seized upon by those anxious to expand its meaning to the very limits of official censorship and concealment. That I do not intend to commit to the extent that it's in my control. And no official of my administration, whether his rank is high or low, civilian or military, should interpret my words here tonight as an excuse to censor the news, to stifle dissent, to cover up our mistakes, or to withhold from the press and the public the facts they deserve to know. For we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covet means for expanding its sphere of influence 
on infiltration instead of invasion, on subversion instead of election, on intimidation instead of free choice, on guerrillas by night instead of armies by day. It is a system which has conscripted vast human and material resources into the building of a tightly knit, highly efficient machine that combines military, diplomatic, intelligence, economic, scientific, and political operations. Its preparations are concealed, not published. Its mistakes are buried, not headlined. Its dissenters are silent, not praised. Dissenters are silent, not praised. Its dissenters are silent, its dissenters are silent. Okay. Did you know about this jellyfish-looking thing getting around the other week? Come across this one today. A strange robotic jellyfish-like alien on the cover of Fantastic Universe scene fiction, or so. Fantastic Universe science fiction magazine in June 1956, guys. What's going on there? sound and frequency and vibration are key to understanding life. Do you know that a bee's wings cannot support its body weight to fly? Instead, the bee creates a, a massless environment to travel through with the frequency slash vibration that it resonates. resonates. Do you know that the speed of sound can be amplified to exceed the speed of light? A group of university students amplified sound to be six times the speed of light. Do you know that the sound can extinguish a fire? In this clip, a group of students conduct an experiment that extinguishes fire with sound. Do you know that sound slash frequency can kill cancer cells? Check out Royal Raymond Wright and Anthony Holland. Do you know that George's Lakowski cured his father of quadriplegia after a terrible car accident with an isolator. Have a listen to this. It's not affected by viruses, bacteria, pathogens, it slides. It's one of those miraculous things. Apparently the reason that honey does that is because of the frequencies of the bees' wings when they're building the honeycombs and when they're creating and bringing in the honey. So it's a frequency of the bee's wings that creates the hexagonal structure of honeycombs. It's also interesting is that the hexagonal structure is a structure of, of, of oxygenated and structured water that cures disease. This is really important. If any one of you can go and record the frequency of bees in a beehive, the buzzing of the bee's wings, and you take that frequency to a lab, a biochemistry lab, and you expose a petri dish of viruses, bacteria, and fungus to the frequency of the bee's wings, I suspect that that frequency will kill the bacteria. But George Lakovsky's multiple wave oscillator um, is a spectacular device with which he cured his father, listen carefully, he cured his father of quadriplegia. You don't cure people of quadriplegia, right? His father was admitted with quadriplegia into the hospital in the USA. 
Six weeks later, he walked out on crutches. The way he treated him is every day he walked in there with a little small handheld portable multiple wave oscillator from George Lakovsky and treated him for about 45 minutes up and down his spine, after which he exposed him to color light therapy for another hour. He did this for four weeks, six weeks, father walked out on crutches. I saw the hospital report. It says, Mr. So-and-so exhibited a remarkable recovery. That's it. It's spectacular. They just won't go there. <laughs> they will not be you know, engaged in any explanation. In 2011, Anthony Holland, this is now in a TED talk, show us which frequencies kill cancer cells. Very briefly, okay, he tells us between 100,000 hertz and 300,000 hertz kills cancer cells. And he shows us in the TED talk. We now know that cancer is vulnerable between the frequencies of 100,000 hertz and 300,000 hertz. So now we attack leukemia cells. Leukemia cell number one tries to grow a copy of itself, but the new cell is shattered into dozens of fragments and scattered across the slide. Leukemia cell number two then hyperinflates and also dies. Leukemia cell number three then tries to make another cancer cell. The new cell is shattered and the original cell dies. Magnetrons obviously generate huge amounts of energy and that's just sound. It's a resonant cavity magnetron. Resonant cavity magnetron that's used in laser beams, laser technology, microwaves, all used magnetrons for that technology sound acts as a close cloak of invisibility uh, this there's so much new information about this uh, you know this opens a whole new chapter and debate this very advanced new sound cloaking technology right now available uh, this plastic 3d acoustic pyramid acts as a as an acoustic cloak make things make things invisible when you put it underneath it when you expose that pyramid to specific sound frequencies and that pyramid is reminiscent of what is reminiscent very strongly of eastern architecture sound creates hurricanes in 2003 these guys lodged a patent to create hurricanes with sound and then here's another one sound creates supercluster galaxies when i said earlier the lower the frequency the larger the cymatic shape now you've got a frequency that's 57 octaves lower than middle C rumbling away from a supermassive black hole in the Perseus cluster in the key of B flat creating a supercluster galaxy and it's amazing this is a, apparently an image of it I like the one on the left because when you watch Hans Jenny's cymatic documentary that looks identical to the images of lycopodium powder on a metal plate with sound frequencies on it. This is like lycopodium powder that's creating supercluster galaxies. This is insane. So he starts to get into the, the idea of as above, so below. There's no end. This is what really disturbs me. The fact that we could put out fire with sound, and yet this has not been employ employed or used anyway. Why? Because it's not good for business. Remember, if we, the moment we stop, 
the growth and the need for money, the entire global financial system collapses. This is just spectacular. These kids develop this little resonator that puts out a fire. Five seconds. Count it from the moment they put it down to the frying pan to when the fire is out. Five seconds. Imagine the fire trucks arriving at a building, burning building. The ladders go up. And instead of fire hoses, a bunch of speakers get switched on and put out this frequency. That fire in the building will be out in literally a few, few seconds or a minute. The entire fire, everywhere, because it res it'll resonate right through the building. But that's not going to happen. Because that's going to save a lot of money. Swarm robotics were attached to a drone, and that would be applied to forest fires or even building fires where you wouldn't want to attract Five fire. seconds. Sound energizes the air we breathe, and this is how we actually oxygenate our bodies and our lungs, and through our, our lungs, the blood in our veins and our arteries, rather. Because as you breathe, the sound, that the air that you breathe makes a bloody noise, and it goes into your lungs, and it goes into the, the smaller and smaller orifices as it moves into your lungs. So it speeds up and speeds up and speeds up, and it goes higher and higher and creates these frequencies. And it's the energy and the sound of this, the air that you breathe that actually energizes the oxygen in the air. So that oxygen is buzzing as it's moving faster and faster. By the time it reaches the alveoli and it goes from the alveoli into your arteries, uh, into, sorry, from the lungs into the arteries, that oxygen in the air is buzzing and energized from the sound. And that's when it goes into your blood and it's used in the blood and it's stripped of the vibrating energy. And when it's stripped of the vibrating energy, you breathe it out again. And it just repeats that cycle. And that's how we oxen, uh, energize the oxygen that we breathe. That don't teach you this at medical school. In 2011, Luc Montagnier spontaneously generated DNA by exposing a tube of water to certain sound frequencies that had the frequencies of a DNA in it and constituted DNA in, in, in an empty test tube. If you can create DNA in an empty test tube with sound, now you start understanding how we can start cloning other species and other creatures just by sound and vibration. And then obviously sonoluminescence, the star in a jar. God said, let there be light. A bubble with brilliant light inside a body of water. Is it possible that all the star systems that we see out there are actually just giant bubbles of light in a never-ending mass of water? I don't know. All right, moving right along. Very interesting. All right, so I've just got a few news articles now. What's going on out there in the big world? <clears throat> Speaker Johnson says he confronted Biden to his face about the border. Do your job. Republican Speaker of the House Mike Johnson is warning President Joe Biden to get the border under control. Famine in Gaza. The population of Gaza Strip faces an increasing risk of famine as the Israeli-Hamas war drags on. The United Nations World Food Programme warned Tuesday. France logged record number of asylum requests in 2023. A record number of people sought asylum in France last year, a rise in more than 
80% on the previous year, the country's refugee protection program. Ocean freight rates skyrocketing to WSJ. The shipping crisis in the Red Sea due to the Houthi attacks is threatening the global supply chain. NATO signs 1.2 billion artillery, artillery shell deal. NATO on Tuesday signed a contract's worth $1.2 billion to acquire over 200,000 155mm artillery shells in the face of Russia's invasion on Ukraine. Germans told to prepare for another war with Russia. Germany should use the next few years to prepare for a possible Russian attack, its defence chief has said. Russian coal exports to Southeast Asia surged by nearly 50%. Exports of Russian coal skyrocketed last year as Moscow diverted supplies away from Western markets, the data has shown. Trump closes in on Biden's rematch after New Hampshire win. Donald Trump won the key New Hampshire primary on Tuesday, moving him even closer to locking in the Republican presidential nomination and securing. Turkish MPs approve new NATO expansion. Turkish parliament has voted in favour of letting Sweden join NATO, leaving only Hungary standing in the way of Stockholm's bid. Biden wins New Hampshire Democrat primary despite not being on the ballot. Joe Biden emerged um, victorious in the New Hampshire Democratic primary through a write-in campaign. Democrat, Democrat New Hampshire voters admit to voting for Nikki Haley in Republican primary to sabotage Trump. Biden supporting Democrat New Hampshire voters admit to voting for Nikki Haley in the Republican primary Tuesday evening to sabotage Trump. U.S. launches new round of airstrikes in Iraq. The U.S. carries out airstrikes targeting Kataib, uh, Hezbollah, and other Iranian-backed military groups in Iraq. Nothing can stop immigration, EU border chief. The new head of uh, Frontex believes immigration is inevitable and wants to crack down on people smuggling while welcoming Asylees. Um, waiting for the sun. Solar. Uh, where was this one? Okay. Solar cells face the wrong direction. Japanese slim lander put to sleep on the moon. Sunshine from the west may salvage the mission. The moon is experiencing a rush of visitors, with many countries sending multiple missions in space missions where sometimes success and failure can be found locked in a cosmic embrace waiting for the sun. Brazil hit by a record 1,161 natural disasters in the year 2023. Brazil was hit by more than three natural disasters a day last year surpassing an annual total of 1,000 for the first time on record, as Grimm's statistics reveal. Far-right party stripped of state funding. Germany's far-right Die Heimat 
Party has been barred from state funding by court order. EU states FM receives Ukrainian death threat. Hungarian Foreign Minister Peter Szyzatl has said that he received a death threat ahead of his visit to the Ukraine. Apple fined over Hitler book. A Russian court has fined Apple for refusing to remove Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf from the Apple Books application. Church of Greece comes down against same-sex marriage. The powerful Church of Greece on Tuesday formally announced its opposition um, to a bill legislating the same-sex marriages and adopting that it is expected to come. North Korea fires several cruise missiles towards Yellow Sea, CL military. North Korea fired several cruise missiles towards Yellow Sea on Wednesday, CEL's military said, the latest in a series of tension rising. EU to ramp up efforts to shield sensitive assets from China. The European Union will unveil a raft of measures Wednesday to better coordinate actions on protecting sensitive technology and stopping critical information leaking out. Germany issues warning on Ukraine support. Finance Minister calls to boosting Ukraine's defence amid shrinking economy, economy and share the financial burden. Okay, now this one's a little bit different. I was talking to someone today about mould. And I remember a friend of mine used vinegar. Um... And so i done a little quick search before i come on. Um, I was just curious to find out because there was something else. I knew it was black something, but I couldn't remember it. I found the word. It was black salve, S-A-L-V-E. Um, it's called black salve. It's made from native North American bloodroot plant and it is good for removing warts, moles, and skin cancers. I have used it on many moles and I ordered for an X with diagnosed skin cancer on his neck. It worked. Um, sen, I don't know if this is the word, Sen Junoria Canadensis. <laughs> so I'd never become a botanist, guys. I was going to actually, I was going to be a greenkeeper. And once I started seeing some of the words, you know, I said, ah, this ain't for me, man. Okay. This is another woman talking about moles. I'm not sure what she uses here. Let's have a quick look. This is the one that I recommended, actually, but she's added something to it. I said to the person, try castor oil. And I actually, when I had a look, I did find that it is good. So now it's good for a lot of things. And I thought, well, if it attacks things and heals and that, maybe it would do the same with that. And sure enough, the second article I come across was castor oils. Um, I think she got, oh, I'm not going to read it because she'll probably say that. I haven't actually listened to her yet. Okay. She'll probably say what the write-up says anyway. ...and skin tags, so I wanted to try the castor oil with the cayenne and then put it on my back overnight. And... Oh, there you go. Yeah, she's put the cayenne. I knew she was mixing something through with it. Yeah, so it's castor oil and cayenne pepper. I'll take it back to start. I had a couple, like, unwanted moles and skin tags, so I wanted to try the castor oil with the cayenne and then put it on my back overnight, and half of my mole came off. I'm not kidding. So I will keep you posted. I just put like a little bit of castor oil um, in a dish, mixed it with the cayenne, put 
put it on a paper towel and then taped it onto my back overnight. And so I'm going to do it again, but I'll keep you guys posted because all those unwanted moles and skin tags can come off without going to the dermatologist. Amazing. Good stuff. Good stuff. All right. Ancient pyramids discovered in Australia, you may ask. Check this out. Did you hear that Tutankhamun actually, they found um, boomerangs in his, um, in his vault, whatever he called it, in his tomb? I don't know if this brings that up. Anyway, this is a bit of, um, this one goes for about 15 minutes, I think. I only listened to half of it. Let's have a look here. Yeah, 14 minutes. Check this out. Just got to try and take it back to the start here. Connection with these two very distant lands over 5,000 years ago. We recently covered the ancient Egyptian Australian connection, sharing the intriguing yet quietly cataloged, thus little known, or researched artifacts which have undoubtedly displayed a connection with these two very distant lands over 5,000 years ago. Boomerangs in Egypt and the hieroglyphs in Gosford and, alas, the destroyed Gimpy Pyramid which was bulldozed into the sea. However, the Gosford glyphs speak of another great monument, a pyramid built for an extremely wealthy pharaoh. Dr. Von Sen, an amateur aging independent archaeologist, has concluded after several decades of extensive research regarding these curious connections that Australia was actually discovered in the Third Dynasty about 5,000 years ago, landing on the Cape York Peninsula and subsequently moving south. Much of his own work collaborating prior research of Queensland Egyptologist Ray Johnson, who claimed to have done a transcription of the Gosford hieroglyphs. According to Mr. Johnson, who died in 2004, the carvings mark the burial site and accompanying pyramid of Lord Nefertiru, who was a member of the Egyptian royal family. It tells of him having died in the area while leading an expedition with his brother, Nefertigitib, somewhere along the Australian East Coast. During our exploration into said research, we became aware of the translation of these 300 or so glyphs inscribed upon the ancient Gosford rocks, an inscription explaining the location of these places. Granite is a particularly hard and heavy material, often picked as the core stone of choice for the weight-bearing structures within these enormous buildings. There is indeed a granite pyramid in Queensland, and surprisingly, it is even known as a pyramid. Known as the Welsh Pyramid, it has long been defined as a natural independent granite peak with little to no exploratory research, ever to the contrary. And this peak even appears to be the shape of a pyramidal structure. In the 1870s, the mountain was named after the Queensland Government Minister of Works, William Henry Walsh, and every year in August, this mountain is the focus of a race, charmingly called the Great Pyramid Race. It involves runners completing a 12-kilometer course from the middle of nearby Gordon Vale to the summit of Walsh's Pyramid. No explorations of this possible pyramid have ever been allowed, 
this, regardless of the quietly kept fact that Egyptian hieroglyphic information within Australia actually confessing to the existence of such a possible structure and within the specific vicinity. Just like the Bosnian site, this mainly granite structure is conveniently hidden beneath several feet of earth, seemingly aiding in the plausible deniability of such an ancient structure actually existing beneath. Known as the backbone of Ruwer-Nuer National Park, we would welcome exploration and excavations of this uniquely shaped mountain within Australia, especially after becoming aware of such compelling ancient information. Is Walsh's pyramid a man-made pyramid? Is it the structure we see? If this is the case, why is it being suppressed and hidden like so many other sites around the world and possibly even further afield? Tutankhamun's death mask is one of the most iconic artifacts ever recovered from Egypt, or probably the world. It is an awe-inspiring sight. However, what many people who visit Egypt to see these ancient relics are unaware of, a rather curious collection of artifacts found alongside the exquisitely casted mask of gold, wrestling with cut for all those centuries was more than likely a favorite pastime of the pharaoh, throwing his collection of Australian boomerangs complete with aboriginal artwork. Aboriginals were a civilization who also partook in the ceremony of mummification. Not only did they practice the technique which made ancient Egypt famous, the two apparently separate cultures' methods were near identical to each other. The processes were so similar, in fact, Salento, upon examining an aboriginal mummified child, concluded that the incisions and method of embalming were the exact same as those employed in Egypt between the 21st and 23rd dynasties. And he is not alone in his conclusion. In 1911, Elliot Smith also became especially interested in the fact that the Australian Aboriginals and the neighboring peoples had certain customs of mummification which were very similar, if not identical to that of ancient Egyptian methods. Due to this evidence, people began to postulate a pre-Columbian visit to the Australian continent. This is, however, before one became aware of the Gosford glyphs. Located near Carryong, about 60 kilometers north of Sydney, the hieroglyphs are unique in their appearance. The engravings number well over 300, yet vandalization has occurred with newer frauds appearing since 1986. Yet the original glyph's authenticity is unquestionable. The original image includes an engraved onk, an essential accompaniment to Thoth, placed alongside an ibis footprint and the River of Life, the Egyptian crypt dedicated to the memory of the son of a pharaoh, said to be constructed close to the Duramelon rock platform. The remarkable hieroglyphs thus strongly insinuate the presence of Egyptian ruins within Australia. Dated to the beginning of the 16th century, some 5,000 years ago, means these glyphs should form a pivotal and historic epitaph to an Australian history very few suspected. The hieroglyphs also contain unique and strange UFO symbols, with a figure seated at a control panel, a figure that could represent Pharaoh Akhenaten, or something far more profound. It seems that not only do we have strong connections linking Egypt to Australia, but to many sites dotting the world. Tobacco and other things found in and around ancient Egypt has also provided compounding evidence to suggest a vast and highly sophisticated method of traversing the Earth's oceans thousands of years prior to the creation of the United States of America. We will endeavor to explore further evidence of the ancient Egyptian culture being... Oh, I think there was... Just pause that for a minute there. It just come to mind. I think that it, from right, it was... In the Ark of the Covenant, I'm pretty sure that it was um, 
something acacia that was actually used from Australia as well, or, or gum. I'm pretty sure it was actually an acacia that was, from what I've heard anyway, I might be a bit off track. I'll have to look that up again. Um, just come to mind. I'm pretty sure it was to do with the um, the Ark of the Covenant. Interesting. Through present in Australia in an attempt to unearth further hidden details that may help us shed more light on our very distant past. As always, thanks for watching, guys. Until next time, take care. Recently, we covered the unusual connections which have been made between the ancient Egyptian civilization and the Australian continent. The strange, yet not often discussed discoveries, such as that of Tutankhamun's vast boomerang collection, the vast and extremely controversial hieroglyphs discovered near Queensland, known as the Gosford Glyphs, locally known for centuries as the Woiwoi Hieroglyphs, which clearly depict the burial ceremony of an Egyptian god, the cross-Pacific voyage undertaken, and a pyramid supposedly constructed upon the continent. There is, however... There's also another one that they talk about over here. It's, um, it's called the Gimpy Pyramid. Another one interesting to look at as well. So much more. At Tin Can Bay, the chosen location of this once existing ancient Egyptian pyramid, for some reason, over the last century, a massive cover-up operation has ensued. The pyramid subsequently bulldozed onto a barge and the stone dumped off Fraser Island. The 10 to 12 men who were involved in this lengthy, destructive, and highly criminal task all signed secrecy agreements with the Australian government, agreeing to never tell anyone of their operation to rob Australians and the rest of the world of a truly historical understanding. Many people have researched this destroyed, controversial structure, and through extensive excavations and fact-finding exhibitions, have fortunately confirmed its past existence beyond any doubt. Although other ancient ruins have been found in the area, all have been extensively researched by individuals funded by organizations who would prefer that they arrive at certain conclusions. Thus, they may have largely been put down as being built in the last 200 years in many academic papers. However, many independent investigators have spent over 20 years attempting to decipher the pyramid's mysterious existence. The pyramid was noted as existing by the very first white explorers to the area. The aboriginal population had been aware of the structure for millennia. During numerous excavations of the Tin Can Bay area, several large stone statues were recovered. It is difficult to deny an attempted suppression of the pyramid's discovery when you are made aware of the fact that out of the five animal statues uncovered at the site, only one survives. Thanks to being buried within archives at the time of the other statue's disappearances, a creature not native to Australia, explaining the presence of ancient Egyptian-style mummification rites once practiced among the Torres Strait Islanders and Cape York Aboriginal tribes, as well as associated rites and beliefs have also paralleled the same teachings of the religion of Osiris. Although many scholars, funded for many different conclusions, have all attempted to discredit the pyramid as a modern knockoff, this is in staunch rejection of the overwhelming and very real evidence in the form of cultural artifacts, which paint a very different picture of events, events which occurred within antiquity. You have to wonder why a story based entirely in fiction is passed off as the truth. One of our favorite set of artifacts defending a factual account of history 
have to be the scarab beetles, which, while certain authorities clearly attempt to keep the lid on Egyptian culture within Australia, cannot seem to get away from. These beautiful things just keep being unearthed. The first such artifact, which managed to make it to popular attention before disappearing forever, was a specimen made of chert, dug up by a workman in 1976. The truth, it appears, is indeed out there. It is just a case of finding it. Actually, one thing I just noticed on that, if I'm, let me just go back a bit here. Look at this. I think I've seen some Hebrew writing on that, actually. Let me just zoom in on this for a sec. Oh, must have been the next one. Sorry about this, guys. I was Authorities clearly attempt to keep the lid on Egyptian culture within <clears throat> Australia cannot seem to get away from. These beautiful things just keep being unearthed. The first such artifact, which managed mm. to make it to popular attention before disappearing forever, now, I'm not sure of the letter. The first one and the scarab, the back of it actually looks like Paleo Hebrew. Was a specimen but this made of next shirt, one as well, very similar. And the third the one has got a yod. Is indeed out huh. there. Ah, that's definitely a yod. That's modern Hebrew. Whoa, that's a trip. I'll have to take a picture of that later and send it off to someone. Oh, wow. Part of the Tetragrammaton. It's really weird. I guess the other one must be just the um the back of the, the beetle that does look paleo, but that to me definitely looks like um, modern Hebrew uh, alphabet. It is just a case of finding it. Mm. In 1994, Klaus Schmidt of the German Archaeological Institute began excavations at a Neolithic site located within modern-day southern Turkey. Noted for its immense size, and it's undeniably incredible. Um, I sort of wouldn't be surprised because there seems to be a connection between the um, Israelites and Japan. Because um, Japan has a certain in their... Um, I just lost the thought of their religion, yeah. Um, well, anyway, it's a hand-biting um, thing, and they actually use a box like these um, certain Jewish people do with their teflon. I think they call it, um, I forget the name of that as well, you know, little square block, box on their head. Yeah, it's a Shinto, I think it is. I think it's a Shinto religion. So, yeah, very interesting. There's um, even the Ten Commandments up in America's as well, on a rock. Incredible antiquity. Gobekli Tepe is an ancient structure made up of at least 200 T-shaped stone pillars, some of which measuring an impressive six meters in height and weighing a respectable 22 tons in weight. From what I've heard in recent archaeology, they've even discovered an older one than about the Tepe. Um, I forget the name of it. I think it is something Tepe. Um, I think it's up more the northern west part of um, that land, so that's another interesting one. However, although it has been admitted as one of the oldest sites on Earth, undeniably contradicting modern-day paradigms in regards to the claimed dates of modern ancestral migration routes, the pillars are also covered with mysterious symbology, some of which has since been identified in an ancient group who not only shared these same symbols within their culture, even to this day, but has since been hypothesized by a number of individual researchers as the possible culprits for the construction of the site itself dating back to what we feel is a now lost antiquity it's interesting 
there's an African tribe, I think they are, or I'm not sure if these are African or Aborigine, but they've got like a horseshoe with a, a thing, so a horseshoe upside down, then another horseshoe, and in the middle is a line, and there's a um, painting on, he looks Aboriginal actually, he might go into it, I'll just see. Gobekli Tepe has been academically dated as being at least 12,000 years old, yet any logical... It's a medicine man. Okay, he might go not. ...explanation as to who or indeed how the site was constructed remains conveniently elusive. Yet regardless of the unanswered questions that many people are still left with, even after academia's explanation, intrigue has seemingly increased since its exception into known site of Earth's antiquities. Modern studies have discovered compelling links between the symbolism of the site and that of the symbolism still used within Aboriginal groups of Australia, famous for their ancient ancestry and their claim yep. of a lost time before history books began, which they now Same call symbol. Dream Time. It, it was too. First... So I can zoom in on this. Um, above left the pillar. Yep. Um, there's this thing on the pillar with, like I said, the horseshoe upside down and, and a, a line in between them. Um, Let's see if it says it here. DA. Above right is a medicine man of... Um, I can't quite read this. Wagaia. Wagaia. W-O-R-G-A-I-A. -A. Um, because of all nations. I can't read the rest of it. It's all distorted, unfortunately. Oh, I can look that up anyway. Very interesting. And they've got birds like the... Um, that extinct bird, I guess you forget the name, the bloody big thing. Um, your identical one in Australia as well that was on Tepe. To these curious beliefs, they also share an ancient language of symbols with the site, whose meanings has unfortunately been lost to the chasm of time. Yet regardless of their lost meaning, the similarities between this mysterious language and that of the symbology carved upon what is claimed as the oldest site on Earth is undeniable. This realization has enabled a number of individual researchers to conclude that there was once a now lost civilization who they now believe and claim was once made up of aboriginals, who they also claim seemingly survived upon the continent of Australia, but were mysteriously wiped out upon the many other continents of the earth. Furthermore, it seems that there are a number of areas upon the site that mainstream sources would prefer stay covered up. The Turkish government recently visited the site and committed an act of criminal vandalism. I'd love to know. I'm going to try and contact their community. I'd love to know what that symbol represents to them. It's definitely exactly the same symbol. Um, I'd love to know the meaning. That's, that's a bit of homework for me to do tomorrow for sure. Filling a number of intriguing voids at the site with cement. The question is, what were they so desperate to conceal? Could there possibly be compounding evidence at the site supporting the new and current hypothesis of the site once having Aboriginal origins? Mm -hmm. It's undoubtedly a site which deserves more protection, one which we find highly compelling. Thanks for watching, guys, and until next time, take care. Very, very interesting. Very interesting. Um... No, don't know this one. I'm going to have a quick listen to this. I think I've put this in the wrong folder. It's under the title Super Bowl, Katy Perry, World War Three, Israeli nuclear bomb, Beirut, Kim Jong. 
All right, we'll have a quick listen. I think it's just another presenter I was going to listen to. His name's Israel Diego Rivera. Or I, I guess, or maybe it's... don't know, but that's what it says. That's all the information I've got on him. Let's have a listen to this. We seem to see a city like Lebanon. Okay. We'll give him a couple of minutes. It looks like we're going to have World War Three starting in February. Israel has cleared its border next to Lebanon. And in the Illuminati game card, we seem to see a city like Lebanon being nuked. Sorry, a city like Beirut in Lebanon being nuked. So Israel has cleared the border. Remember that the operation is called Al-Aqsa Flood. Al-Aqsa means palm tree. We have La Palma, St. Michael of the Palm. La Palma, that's the real name for La Palma. He slays the dragon. It seems like we're going to have a La Palma event, a tsunami, and we're going to have World War Three. And what I think is that China will invade Taiwan, and this seems to be shown in the film I Pet Goat 2. So Israel is getting ready for war with Hezbollah. This is going to bring in Iran. I believe they will nuke Beirut. As Netanyahu said, it was Israel's 9-11. God, I thought I was a Debbie Downer. This guy is really getting me off to a really depressive state of mind now, isn't he, eh? Little ray of sunshine. I'll continue for another two minutes. Now we have some interesting news on Prince Charles. He's going for an operation. This is strange because you would think that an operation of that type would not be publicised to the media. So could it be something more serious? I said that Prince William would be king in April with the solar eclipse. Reason being is that Prince William was born on the summer solstice by caesarean birth from Diana. Diana is associated with Isis. She died in the Pont d'Alma tunnel in Paris, which is named after Isis, the 13th. I've also got some, um, I'm not sure if it's dru druidic um, indoctrines into the Queen, one that died, Queen Elizabeth. Um, I've got that coming up as well. It's just a short clip about that. Very interesting. 13th column. Her perfume was called Isis. Her Harrods Memorial was in the Egyptian staircase with a pyramid with Masonic candles. And it was also dedicated to Isis. You had birds representing the higher self, the spirit. And then in the Serpentine in London, where you have her memorial by a, a pool of water, remember, Diana is always portrayed bathing in paintings. Isis, the crown, she has a crown, the sun has a crown. Duality, <coughs> corona. Now, Diana is a memorial, she has like a water memorial, which is symbolic of Isis, 
There is an Ibis Egyptian bird, which is also called Isis, next to her memorial. And she was buried, and the memorial is near the Serpentine, the Serpentine Residence. That's the bird I was thinking of before, the dodo bird. That's the one. You have a look at that, the one in Tobacco Tepe. Sure, that's a bloody dodo bird, unless it's something else that looks bloody similar to it. Snake, which is the Kondalini to the bird, to the higher self. And it's all about slaying this age, slaying the serpent, and creating a new age. This is what I believe is behind these events. The new age of Aquarius. We've just entered the month of Aquarius. So, Israel has cleared its border. I believe they're going to use a nuclear bomb. Maybe next month. Bloody hell. Interesting character. It goes for 15 minutes. I won't play because I've got a lot to get through. Um, if I've got some time at the end, I might play him again. But um, yeah, it's got a lot. What are we at now? Damn, 50 minutes already. I better speed things up here. Uh, Greg Braden. Uh, let's have a quick listen. 24 to 2030. Um, we'll give him five minutes. I started off a little bit later. Cold here. Okay. Cold, clear night. Uh, yeah. I have been traveling uh, a lot. and I don't know how long. He usually does this. He starts talking about himself for a bit. Watching the, the, uh, the craziness of this world unfold through many different eyes and different cultures. And uh, I think pretty much everyone is in agreement that this is this is no ordinary time in the history of our planet. It's bizarre to be sure. Are you doing any trips to uh, Gaia? You know, I was just in Gaia. I'm going to forward it a bit. It might freeze. I don't care. I'll just skip it. Israel. Uh, political warfare. Okay. Cyber yeah. warfare. We're all familiar. There we go. It was just happen. in Gaia in August for mm. ancient civilization for everybody. Okay, here we go. It, it is a tense time, George. You know, and this one of the things that uh, the people are asking me all over the world: Why now? What in the world is going on? Why is it? Why does it feel like the world's coming apart at the seams? You know, right now. And you know, the answer, George, it's one of those beautiful places where science and if you haven't realized, that's George Norrie, of course, from Case to Case that he's talking to. Spirituality and and the real world come together in in a really powerful way. So, you know, I, I know it's no news to, to this audience. It's a very well-informed audience, and, and I'm always thrilled to, to be with this community. There's an ancient battle that's unfolding, George, and we all know that. It's, it's the battle between light and dark, good and evil, played out throughout history, and it, it plays out in different ways throughout history. What makes now so very different is that technology is allowing that battle to play out in ways that we've never seen. It's funny because in the Mayan prophecies, they, they said that our, um, what was it? Our things would attack us. Like, it was really weird when I first I read it about 30 years ago. Um, oh, I forget the exact wording, but it had to do with your, your utensils and stuff attacking you. You know, I, I pictured dolls coming to life, you know, the crazy stuff. But now with technology, it's pretty much going to damn all happen, you know. Fridge starts spazzing out and electrocute you or some bloody stupid thing. Who knows what they're bloody capable of doing with all these chip, chips and things and our light systems that they put up through the houses now. 
Anything like that's pretty bloody on the cards, guys. Before George, and what's called a fifth generational warfare. Now, I know some of your, your listeners are very familiar with that. Some listeners may have never heard of a five-gen warfare. But it's, it's a form of warfare that begins in the human mind and in the heart, George, before it ever makes its way onto a battlefield. There, there are actually five domains of this fifth generational warfare. It's information warfare. We're all familiar. He's gone out. What happened to you? Uh, which back. is playing out right now when it comes to what's happening in uh, what happened in October 7th and, and Israel. Uh, political warfare and then cyber warfare. We're all familiar with, with cyber warfare. And then those types of, of warfare soften the battleground, as it were, before kinetic war ever happens. And the reason this is important is because this warfare, George, is what keeps people in fear. That's right. And when we are locked into fear, and we're seeing this happen, I'm seeing it happen with dear friends, and, and I'm even surprised at, at how deeply my friends are being influenced by misinformation, disinformation, false information. But the, the bottom line, George, it keeps us in fear, and that fear veils our most powerful asset that we have as humans, and it's, it's at the root of this ancient battle between good and evil. So I'm, I'm going to use the word, and, and I'll identify the word. It's, it's about human divinity. And when a lot of people hear the word divinity, they think in terms of religion, you know, why wouldn't we? We have schools of divinity. But when you look at the definition, George, this is fascinating to me, fascinating. Divinity is actually defined as the the ability the human ability to transcend perceived limitations and that's it the ability to transcend to become more than the limitations that may not even be real our perceived limitations when we accept our divinity george we are not subject to the fear that keeps us locked into this ancient battle of perception very, I'm just going to move him forward a bit, see if he brings up something else getting closer between the next six years. Arguing about the goals, but what if what if we actually achieve those goals? What would they, they look like? And I, I was amazed, George, because if we were to achieve those goals, the last time we saw them was during the Pleistocene era uh, in geologic time when the Earth was about 10 degrees cooler than it is now. Uh, about a third of the planet was covered in ice. If we were to meet all of the, the climate goals, that's where Earth would be. And the bottom line is not good for us. So we have to say, who, who is it good for? You know, why, why, uh, why the push to, to create uh, a planet that does not support life as we know it today? And that, that's just an example, George. There are, are battles within battles, battles for our thoughts, our beliefs, battles for our bodies. And, you know, people say, well, isn't it really about money or about oil? And, and on, on one level, there are people that benefit from that. But ultimately, what we're, we're looking at, these, these are engineered conflicts in the world around us and in the world within us, designed to keep us in fear. All right. Interesting. Yeah, I don't mind some of his, um, yeah, his look at life and, you know, events and things like that. That was old Greg Braden. He'd been around for a few years. 
The unbelievable cyborg wife controls husband with her mind. History Channel. Let's have a quick look at this one. Nineteen sixty-three. Spain. He's a little guy. He's wearing a sweater and a tie. And he comes out with the traditional cape, but also holding a radio transmitter. Certainly this tiny scientist is no match for the bull. Luckily for Dr. Jose Delgado, he has a secret weapon, mind control. The scene is set up to be a bloodbath. The bull begins to charge at Dr. Delgado. And he presses a button on a little transmitter he's holding. And the bull immediately stops in its tracks shakes its head in confusion, and then calmly walks away. We've all heard of a remote-controlled car, but a remote-controlled bull? He has previously implanted electrodes in this particular bull's head, in its caudate nucleus, that are intended to cut the bull's natural aggression. However, the area of the brain that Delgado is targeting has another function. The reality here is that the caudate nucleus is partially responsible for motor control. And so what Dr. Delgado is actually doing is causing the bull to freeze in place. When Delgado presses the button, a signal short circuits that area in the bull's brain just momentarily, but just enough to stop the charge. That freeze button might sound like a dream to some married people, but for one couple, it's a reality. 1998. Kevin Warwick is a professor of cybernetics at Reading University in England. And in 1998, he decides to go from lecturing about a subject to being part of it. Dr. Warwick transplants 100 electrodes into his left forearm. The electrodes are connected to a smart building. And so his arm can communicate via radio signals to the technology in the building. So when he enters the building, the doors will open, the lights turn on, his computer goes to his favorite website. <laughs> Remarkable. Sure. 2002. But in 2002, Dr. Warwick kicks it up a notch. Professor Warwick has a more advanced microelectrode surgically implanted into his body, and this now allows him to directly communicate with his computer just by thinking about it. Unruly. Really. That was 20 odd years ago. The connection is so good between the human mind and technology that he is able to send commands to open and close a robotic hand in New York. So the hmm. power of his mind is jumping the Atlantic and moving a piece of cybernetic technology. This is the beginning. But he wants this terminal not to be hooked up to some machine, but to be connected to another human being. Not just any human being. He's Dr. Wild. Warwick, or Captain Cyborg, as he's dubbed by his peers, has the perfect person in mind. Uh -oh. Captain Cyborg 
does something that most married men are reluctant to do. <laughs> he has a processor inserted into his wife, Irina. He and his wife are literally in communication at the level that you only ever get with your own body. The Freaky. communication that happens is when his wife thinks about opening or closing her. I guess she can't lie, um, lie literally lie in bed um, after a little bit of romance now, can she? <laughs> hand which then sends a signal back into warwick's arm causing his hand to open and close his wife has control over his body i don't like giving anyone that i'm dating control over the remote control kevin warwick's experiments give us a glimpse into a future where cyborg technology as strange as it may seem is part of our everyday lives we are moving toward a cyborg future for humanity where we have chips implanted in our bodies and we communicate with the world around us. Imagine if you can actually just think and turn on the lights, run your bath, make your coffee. We have the old commercial, help me, I've fallen and can't get up. Imagine if you could just think that and rescuers come for you. <laughs> the future of humanity is unlimited because humans are so smart and amazing. Well, well, well. What a trip, eh? I got this other one, but I think it's the same thing. Oh no, this is a bit different. That's right. This one brings up the um the bull as well, but it goes in the monkeys as well. I think. Don't listen to this one. Only one minute. Research is not new. A scientific milestone in this area came in the 1960s when Dr. Jose Delgado demonstrated remote control over a charging bull. By connecting a radio antenna to electrodes inserted into the bull's brain, Delgado proved that the animal's aggressive impulses could be thwarted by electronically manipulating the bull's muscle reflexes. Do you realize the fantastic possibilities if from the outside we could modify the inside? Could we give messages to the inside? But the beauty is that now we are not using electrodes. In recent years, Delgado has shown that the behavior of monkeys can be altered using low-power pulsating magnetic fields. But in these experiments, there were no antenna implants. Any function in the brain, emotions, intellect, personality, well, could be perhaps modified by this non-invasive technology. Delgado's research has so far been limited to animals. But in the Soviet Union, a radio frequency, or RF device, has been used for over 30 years to manipulate the moods of mental patients. <laughs> Very interesting. So what I'm going to do, guys, it's gone past the hour, I'm going to have a quick two-minute break, and then in about 20 minutes we'll have a call-in if anyone would like to call in about anything. Or if you want to just call in and sit up on the panel with me, you're most welcome to. Until we get into it. Or you can just sit there and keep me company. <laughs> Alright, gonna brew a cuppa. Back in two minutes. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. 
Let's get into it. Hours after his sighting of nine UFOs, pilot Kenneth Arnold gave this interview on June the 26th, 1947. Have a listen to this. ...has made headlines out of it, and this afternoon we are honoured indeed to have here in our studio this man, Kenneth Arnold, who we believe may be able to give us a first-hand account and give you the same on what happened. Kenneth, first of all, if you'll move up here to the microphone just a little closer... Uh, we'll ask you uh, to just tell in your own fashion, as you told us last night in your hotel room and again this morning, uh, what you were doing there and how this entire thing started. Go ahead, Kenneth. Well, at about uh, 2.15, I took off from Chehalis, Washington, en route to Yakima. And, of course, every time that any of us fly over the country near Mount Rainier, we spend an hour or two in search of the marine plane that's never been found that they believe is in the snow someplace southwest of that particular area. That area is located at about, or <coughs> its elevation is about 10,000 foot. And I had made one sweep in close to Mount Rainier and down one of the canyons and was dragging it for any types of object that might prove to be the marine ship. Uh, and as I come out uh, of the canyon there, it was about 15 minutes. I was approximately 25 to 28 miles from Mount Rainier. I climbed back up to 9,200 feet and I noticed to the left of me a chain which looked to me like the tail of a Chinese kite, uh, kind of weaving and going at a terrific speed across the face of Mount Rainier. I, uh, at first, uh, thought they were geese because it flew like geese, but it was going so fast that, that uh, I immediately changed my mind and decided it was a bunch of new jet planes in formation. Well, as the, as the planes come to the edge of Mount Rainier, flying at about 160 degrees south, uh, I, uh, thought I would clock them because it was such a clear day and uh, I didn't know where their destination was but uh, due to the fact that I had Mount St. Helens and Mount Adams to clock them by I just thought I'd see just how fast they were going since among pilots we argue about speed so much and uh, uh, they seemed to flip and flash in the sun just like a mirror and uh, in fact I happened to be at an angle from the sun that seemed to hit the tops of these uh, peculiar looking things 
in such a way that it, it almost blinded you when you when you looked at at them through your plexiglass windshield. Well, uh, I uh, it was about one minute to three when uh, I st I started clocking them on my uh, my sweet secondhand clock, and uh, as I kept looking at them, I kept looking for their tails. They didn't have any tails. <laughs> I thought, well, maybe I something's wrong with my eyes, and I turned the, the plane around and opened the window and looked out the window and. Sure enough, I couldn't find any tails on them. And uh, the whole observation of these particular ships didn't last more than about two and a half minutes. And I could see them only plainly when uh, they seemed to tip their wing or whatever it was, and the sun flashed on them. They looked something like uh, a pie plate that was cut in half with a sort of a convex triangle in the rear. Now, I thought, well... Uh, that maybe their jet planes with just the, pa the tails painted green or brown or something, and didn't think too too much of it, but kept on watching them. Uh, they didn't fly in a conventional formation that's taught in our army. They uh, they seemed to kind of weave in and out right above the mountaintop. And uh, I would say that they even went down into the canyons in several instances, oh, probably 100 feet. But I could see them against uh, the snow, of course, on Mount Rainier, and against the snow on Mount Adams as they were flashing, and against a high ridge that happens to lay in between Mount Rainier and Mount Adams. But uh, when I observed the tail end of the last one passing Mount Adams, and I was at an angle uh, near Mount Rainier from it, but uh, I looked at my watch and it showed one minute and 42 seconds. Well, uh, I still thought, well, that's pretty fast, and I didn't stop to think what the distance was between the two mountains. Well, I landed at Yakima, Washington, and uh, Al Baxter was there to greet me, and he saw up here. And uh, <laughs> he told me, I guess I better change my brand. <laughs> uh, but he, he kind of gave me a mysterious sort of a look that maybe I had seen something. He didn't know. And, well, I just kind of forgot it then until I got down to Pendleton, and I, I began looking at my map and taking measurements on it. And the best calculation I could figure out, now even in spite of error, would be around 1,200 miles an hour, because making the distance from Mount Rainier to Mount Adams in, we'll say, approximately two minutes, it's almost, uh, well, it'd be around 25 miles per minute. Now, allowing for error, we can give them three minutes or four minutes to make it, and uh, they're still going more than, than 800 miles an hour, and to my knowledge, there isn't anything that I read about outside of some of the German rockets that would go that fast. These were flying in more or less a level, uh, constant altitude. They weren't going up and they weren't going down. They were just simply flying straight and level, and I... Uh, <laughs> And I laughed and I told the pilot at Bell Night, they sure must have had a tailwind, <laughs> but it didn't seem to help me much. But to the best of my knowledge and the best of my description, uh, that is what I actually saw. And uh, like I told the Associated Press, I'll, uh, I'd be glad to confirm it with my hands on a Bible because I did see it. And whether it has anything to do with our army or our intelligence or whether it has to do with some foreign country, I don't know. Hmm, very interesting. We've got a rare photo I come across today, actually. It was, um, it's the Great Sphinx of Giza before the excavations began. It was most likely the photo was taken from a balloon before 1871. And if you note on the picture, there's a hole at the top. It says here, note the hole located on the head of the Sphinx. It is forbidden for official science to talk about the entrance because it was restored and obviously... Uh, lowered there it says what are they covering up there guys I heard there is an entrance through the head as well 
in, in front of a pause as well. Very curious. Mercury equals free energy. watching a real time result right there. That's my hand, the copper hand, so you can know I put I put it's my <laughs> my trademark right there. So then then I do it with the copper right there. So I just decided to show you with copper as well. And I spun that just to show that there's voltage being created. And I think that's important because even if there's a small amount of voltage, that's energy. So if you just spin mercury, that's it. You start to create energy. So think of how much free energy you could have with just a little thing of mercury, which you better stay away from that, as they will tell you. And then we move to this one, which is the next video, just so you guys can see this. So then mercury, key to free energy, and this is what happens when it spins. I'll just start this. And you can kind of see, well, uh, once electricity is you know, pumped into the mercury, you can see what mercury starts to do. And then the guy below is actually creating an antenna with mercury so that he can pick up every station within like a hundred miles. So this is where mercury gets really interesting because it, it is picking up on everything and can be used to harness energy. And then this is another one. So he's just showing how you can light up light bulbs and doing a little salt water, a little mercury. And salt water is another one too, because you can make free energy batteries. And then, so this is him and his little antenna. <laughs> Jeez, man. Yeah, people figuring it out, you know? You can figure out how to get every single station you ever wanted to watch. You don't got to pay for cable anymore. The guy's using it. You've probably seen him get around. He's been around for a few years. He's out in the middle of freaking nowhere, just in the bush. And he's um, watching TV. He's got his own little generator thing and his mercury-filled antenna. <laughs> Picking up stations. Cheeky burger. You just need a little piece of mercury. <laughs> That's the way. Sound frequencies and vibrations. Now, this is one I went through earlier. I don't know. I've had this double, double pasted here. Do you know okay. Won't do that one because I've already done it. Now, what about socialism, guys? You think it's a good idea or a bad idea? This might make you think twice if you think it's a good idea. Listen to this study that was conducted by a teacher scary story. An economics professor at a local college made a statement that she had never failed a single student before, but had recently failed an entire class. The class had insisted that socialism worked, that no one would be poor and no one would be rich, a great equaliser. The professor then said, okay, we will have an experiment in this class. All grades will be averaged and everyone will receive the same grade. No one will fail, but no one will receive an A either. After the first test, the grades were averaged and everyone got a B. 
students who studied hard were upset, and the students who studied little were happy. As the second test rolled round, the students who studied little studied even less, and the ones who studied hard decided they wanted a free ride too, so they studied little. The second average test result was a D. No one was happy. When the third test rolled round, the average was an F. As the test proceeded, the scores never improved. As bickering, name-calling and blame all resulted in hard feelings. No one would study for the benefit of anyone else. To their great surprise, all failed. And the professor told them that socialism would ultimately fail. Because when the reward is great, the effort to succeed is great. When the government takes away all the reward, no one will try or want to succeed. And that is socialism, my friends. A race to the bottom. Mm-hmm. Very interesting, eh? Oh, let's see what else I've got here. Um, I'm not sure if I actually brought this one up as well. I got a feeling I did. I'll just say it anyway, in case. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I did. I'll just say it. Nah, I reckon I already said this, but all right. It's um, it's a strange robot, robotic jellyfish-like alien on the cover of a um, fantastic universe science fiction magazine in June 1956. Isn't that curious? With the um, what's been going around. Lately, with this um, jellyfish-looking creature thing flying around, very interesting. Um, cloning in the nineteen hundreds? Question mark. Just a quick one. You know, back in the day with the nineteen hundreds, with the orphan trains, they were doing a lot of what looked like cloning with children. And if you look back at the nineteen oh one incubators, Coney Island, I remember the Yep. They were they had this stuff on where they had the incubators and they were showing all these children and they said they were all premature, which was interesting. Every single child was premature, but they had just thousands and thousands of these children. So, you know, you sit there and wonder, well, where were all these babies being born from? Where were they coming from? And then you kind of sit there and think back, well, 1901, they could have been cloning. And then now they're saying, you know, we can maybe finally do it. But this technology has been around for a very long time. I never even thought about that. And I did, we had covered, it was one of those uh, nights that I did a, a did you know, strange did you know section. And we were talking about all the incubator babies from Coney Island. Uh, they were pretty much on display. Like they, they were in, they were put in, uh, you know, street level windows. Uh, it was almost like going to a puppy mill. It was, it was incredible. And never once did cloning ever ca uh, cross my mind until right now. Hmm. Very, very peculiar, guys. Strange planet. Now this one, it might be worth actually publishing. It goes for an hour and fifty, actually. But I'm going to put about what time is it? I'm going to put about five or seven minutes into it to give you a taste. I think it's going to be alright to publish. Actually, I haven't listened to the whole thing. I'll listen later on if I get a chance and see if it's worth it. But it's the sacred mystery of red hair, rare blood types, and 
and so forth. So, yeah, it's very fascinating, this redhead and uh, blood type issue. Features of Jesus Christ. So let's get started. This topic first came up for me around 2017 when I started to ponder on this topic of red hair. In fact, it was so fascinating to me. I wrote an article titled The Sacred Mystery of Blood Sacrifice, and I brought up so many dots to connect that this article is pretty lengthy, <laughs> but it's still available on my archived blog. So I'll have a link to that down below. But in this article, I explored the interesting history of redheads, how for centuries, people with red hair have often been the brunt of cruel jokes, persecution, execution, and in some historical accounts, genocide. So much so that over time, having red hair culturally speaking, became a negative thing. You've heard of the terms, the red-headed stepchild, gingers, carrot tops, and on and on and on. In a lot of movies, they... It's very curious because um, Mary Magdalene, in just about all the pictures I've seen as class as a dark red-headed woman, and um, they there's... Oh, I think it was someone Wayne, his name was... Um, I forget his bloody name now, his first name. Gary Wayne, I think it was. Um, he brought up that um, he's got a connection that uh, Jesus was in the royal bloodline of Cleopatra. And I think it was Cleopatra's great-grandmother that they discovered, and she had actually had red hair as well, which is another fascinating thing. Trey, the bullies, to be redheads. So as I was pondering this, I noticed that all throughout history, wherever you see the adversary working so hard... Oh, I might have got that wrong. I think they were saying that Cleopatra was his great-great-grandmother. Yeah, I'll have to re-look at that. Somewhere around there anyway, I'm pretty sure that's more that what was um, he revealed in that one. To persecute and oppress, whether it's... Oh, and there's also only one picture that's um, known to be recorded of so-called the highest possibility of Jesus in the day, and the portrait of him did have red hair. It was um, a picture actually done, I think it was around about 30 to 70 AD, and there's a strong correlation if you put his timeline... 30 years ahead of what we've been told, it actually matches up a lot in the revolts of um, uh, the Roman, re yeah, the, the revolt that happened in 70 AD. The people or a principle, you have to ask the question, why? What truth about these people or this principle is he trying to cover up? Wherever or whomever Satan attacks, you can rest assured that there is something good he doesn't want us to discover some truth that he doesn't want us to figure out or understand. So as I got studying about red hair, I began to learn that in ancient times, redheads were actually considered special and holy, as red is the color of blood, life, and creation. I also learned <laughs> that there are a lot of wild theories out there about the rare phenomenon of red hair. Now, as I was pondering all of this, I was also doing some research on my blood type. So my blood type is A negative. Now for those of you who don't know, RH negative blood is very interesting because not only do scientists pretty much have no clue where it originated or evolved from, they speculate that it was introduced in Europe and spread from there, but many actually believe that it is of non-human origin. This mysterious blood 
produces antibodies that will fatally attack a mother's newborn baby if the baby's blood type is positive. In fact, up until 1973... It's interesting, that too, with the bloodlines. There's a blood type in Russia, in the northern parts of um, Russia. I forgot the name of it. Um, Mora, Mora, um, oh, damn, just lost track of the name of it. Oh, anyway, and the only other apparent blood type I have to look more into it, but um, I don't think it's RH negative because this is um, a bit around the world. Um, but it's the only one which is really, really weird is um, northern Japan, I think it was, the 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 people that lived there, which is fascinating to, um, you know, distinct different locations with the pretty much the same blood type on Earth. Yeah, very weird stuff. When the Rogam shot was discovered, it's estimated... That RH disease claimed the lives of 10,000. I know they start with, I think it's the BAS or the BAS um, up in northern France. Babies every year in the United <coughs> States alone. By 1973, after the shot was introduced, it was estimated that in the United States alone, over 50,000 babies' lives were saved. The use of RH immune globulin to prevent the disease in babies of RH negative mothers has since become standard practice and the disease has been virtually eradicated. Without it, most likely all four of my children would not have survived birth because they all are positive. So as I got thinking about this, I thought about Joseph and Emma Smith. Now they had four children who died at birth. Now my mother has RH negative blood and her mother has RH negative blood. So I began to wonder if I might be related to Emma already knowing that I am related to Joseph through my mother's mother's line. And on my mother's side of the family, through her mother, we are related to Joseph's wife, Emma. She's my fifth cousin, seven times removed. Our common ancestor is Christopher Salmon, who died in Sherwood District, Nottinghamshire, England. Now this is funny, because right before I came across his name just now, while editing this video, I just watched a documentary on salmon. <laughs> That's funny. That's where my, I think it was my grandfather, yeah, well, pretty sure it was my grandfather. I was doing a thing about Robin Hood and that, and that was fascinating because I'm right into archery and found out early last year, I think it was, or late the year before, went through the family tree and went back to bloody, um, yeah, pretty much the same place, yeah, in Sherwood, Nottingham, all that sort of area fascinating and I, i've seen the, the crest or whatever you call it or the flag there is a bloody um an archer figure what's the odds on that as in the fish in fact the video had my pay attention number on it 311 it was three minutes and 11 seconds long i just said to myself salmon sounds pretty good right now that was not even five minutes ago and i sit down and pull up christopher salmon i don't believe in coincidences it was funny too, my great-grandfather was actually paraded, I think it was my great-great-grandfather, I had two in both wars, and um, father and son, and he was actually here in Adelaide, um, they all come out in the streets apparently, he was a recognised, yeah, highly uh, respected soldier, and they come out in the pouring rain and, and welcomed him, I don't know what he was doing down here for, um, I think he was actually more in New South Wales. But the, um, for some reason, he come here to be celebrated. So fascinating. This is where I ended up. <laughs> I wasn't actually born here. I was born where he'd come from pretty much and come through here. And now I'm here. <laughs> Go figure that one out. There's that color red again. Salmon is known as the red fish. 
This is also interesting. The surname Salmon actually comes from the name Solomon. I spent the afternoon working on Christopher Salmon's line, and unfortunately, it reaches a dead end around the 1400s. But I did learn that the very first recorded ancestor with the Salmon name in England was of French origins, and their family left France because of the persecution of the Huguenots. Pretty interesting. I can't help but wonder if this line goes all the way back to King Solomon. Hence, <laughs> that's funny. My arm on one inside come from France as well. Uh, very curious. I'll have to look into that bloodline. Well, I'm just going to play her for another minute, and then I'm going to publish this one. Find her. Yeah, I like what she's got to say here. The name Salmon, that means Solomon. And during my research on Rh negative blood, I discovered something interesting. I learned that my freckles and blue eyes are considered mutations. Having blue eyes, blonde hair, and freckles is apparently rare. I'm also the only child in my family covered in freckles, and I didn't pass the freckles on to my kids. Though this combination is rare, I learned that red hair, which is more rare, coupled with freckles and green, hazel, or blue eyes, are reported as more common among Rh-negative carriers. So just like the Rh-negative gene, the red hair gene, the MC1R, is recessive. This means that these redhead traits will only appear in a child if both the child's parents supply the gene. Hmm. I don't know about that, but I know I've got receding. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to push put this one out tonight, guys, so look out for this one later up on the pot of roomy. Very interesting. Oh, it is open lines too, guys. We're at the one and a half hour mark. Anyone's welcome to call in. If not, I've got a hell of a load of stuff to get through anyway. All right. Graham Hancock, another one I'm going to actually put it up. So I'm not going to play that one. I'll give you a little taste. I've already a bit through it. The Return of the Plumed Serpent. This is about halfway through. We'll give you a bit of a taste of where he's at, what he's on about on this one. Let's turn this up a bit. Much talk, uh, there was much talk around the 21st of December 2012 uh, of a rebirth of human consciousness and of the return of Question Kalaipal again, uh, that, we, that we don't need to make the mistakes that our ancestors made. And we don't need to repeat the cycle of violence and wickedness that has been, has been imposed upon the human race. Uh, but at any rate, Malinar went to the coast in hope that she would encounter this god of peace and that she would be able to uh, work with him to bring about the end of this awful regime of human sacrifice. And, and lo and behold, when she when she gets to the coast, and again, this is a historical fact, she's, she's actually taken prison, prisoner by the Maya. Um, and this is at exactly the time that Cortez uh, arrived in Mexico with 490 men. And, and again, here you have, you have a scenario that, that it would be impossible to make up. The Aztecs have a standing army of 200,000 men. They are uh, an extraordinarily brutal mil militaristic power. They are like Hitler's Germany in Mexico uh, in the 16th century. They're a war machine. And on their coast, 
claiming 490 Spaniards. And at first, the odds seem absolutely insuperable. How can, how can such a tiny group of men possibly hope to overthrow uh, an empire on this scale? Incredibly brave, too, to be doing that, Graham. Yeah, I have to, I have to say that, that, that I have many reservations about the Spaniards. Um, they were extremely negative and cruel in many ways, but they were also men of their time. And we have to remember that in those times, in the 16th century, uh, ethics were completely different from, from ethics today. In those times, might was right. If you had the force, if you had the power, then you used it to take from others. And that was not considered to be wrong. It was just the way things, the way things were and the way they had been. Uh, for a very for a very long time, uh, and 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 I have to pay tribute to the astonishing courage uh, of of these this small group of Spaniards uh, who turn up on this hostile coast, not really knowing exactly what it is they're going to confront, but pretty soon finding out what it is. And they first of all uh, make contact with the Maya. They land on the island of Cozumel, a well-known holiday resort today. And uh, they, 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 they then sail round, round the sum of the Yucatan and come down on, on the Tabasco River. And that's where Cortez has his first major uh, military encounter. And, and I show in the book that he's driven on to seek out this encounter by his visionary encounters with the entity that he construes as St. Peter, who is demonic. Uh, who is the same entity, in fact, that is misleading Moctezuma. Uh, and, and there, Cortes confronts a gigantic Mayan army of at least 50,000 men. Um, and, you know, the odds seem absolutely insuperable. How could he, how could he possibly hope to win that battle? Uh, he has no allies whatsoever. There's just him and his 490 Spaniards. But they have a number of advantages. They have um, something quite incomprehensible to the indigenous people. They have dogs that are used as weapons of war. They have a hundred wolfhounds and mastiffs with them. And these dogs are trained to kill. Uh, and they dress them up in armor. Uh, so they, they're huge, savage, killer dogs. And they have a, they have a, a hundred of those dressed in, in shining armor of metal plate and chain mail. Um, and, and there were dogs were known in Central America, but there was no dog larger than the Chihuahua. Yeah, well, sorry about that. I just have to duck away for a sec. Um, yeah, I'm going to publish that for sure. It goes for 45 minutes, the whole interview with him. Really enjoyed David Graham Hancock. Um, Michael Cremo is another, another guy I like listening to as well. Um, there's a few out there, you know. Another one that I was just trying to think of, and um, oh, shit, I just can't remember his name. Now, I don't know what this one is, I can't remember what I've done here. It must have been all right for me to put it on here. It's called Is the Moment of Truth Upon Us? The beginning of a civil war, question mark. Supreme Court rules. It's illegal for National Guard to guard nation. 
Thomas Jefferson once declared, when injustice becomes law, resistance becomes duty. As we witness the Supreme Court siding with federal authority over the state-imposed seawire barriers along the Mexican border, we stand at a crossroads. What will unfold when federal forces march to dismantle these barriers? Mm. And Texas Governor Greg Abbott, along with his National Guard, stands in defiance. Right, will the gonna... threatened imprisonments and fines, reaching up to $5,000 or three years in prison for National Guard members, this is very interesting considering the movie that's coming up this year about pretty much civil war. Be enforced. This decision strikes at the heart of state sovereignty. Let these words resonate deep. And this was, I think, a war against the bloody feds. So this is very interesting. Your right, our right, to protect ourselves from invasion has been usurped. This is a clarion call, a moment of reckoning. If we fail to assert State ourselves succeeding. now, we teeter on the brink of a precipitous and dangerous descent. As I reiterate, with added emphasis for those <coughs> who may not have heard, the right of states to protect themselves from invasion mm -hmm. has been effectively nullified. What then is the purpose of a National Guard in every state if its use is dictated and curtailed by federal intervention, yep. stripping away our rights one by one? The words of James Madison echo eerily in this context. The accumulation of all powers, legislative, executive, and judiciary, in the same hands, may justly be pronounced the very definition of tyranny. Are we, as a nation, inching closer to a reality reminiscent of authoritarian regimes? Every passing day draws a parallel that is increasingly hard to ignore. It falls upon us, as Americans, patriots, parents, civilians, and veterans, to steer the course of our nation's destiny. The future of this country rests in our collective hands. The question looms large. What liberties will be compromised next? That's right. That's right, guys. Could be witnessing something very significant in history in the United States. Really, we the people demand it. If you're wondering what happened um, the last couple of days with anyone getting nausea, headaches and weakness, well on January the 22nd and the 23rd a powerful magnetic storm hit the earth. That's right. Pretty much off the Richter scale guys. For instance, if you go back all through January, you got two going back. Um, different times it will come up as an average of two to three is pretty decent four is pretty decent but on the 22nd and 23rd we had a five and a five that's right pretty big guys pretty big now those that think that these um smoking e-cigarettes are, are pretty harmless and that have a listen to this 
and many of other reports as well. A 22-year-old guy underwent a complete lung transplant after smoking e-cigarettes for years. Doctors said that the chance of survival after such an operation is only 1%. The kid from North Dakota was hospitalised um, due to low oxygen levels. His condition was deteriorating and he had to be hooked up to a life support machine. Relatives say the problems developed due to smoking e-cigarettes and at some point it got so bad that his heart stopped beating on his own. You know, note at the bottom, don't forget to send this message to your e-cig lovers. North Korea state media has also now released a propaganda poster of a tank rolling over South Koreans entitled Let Us Destroy the US Imperialists and the Clan of the Republic of Korea Without Mercy. Hmm, very interesting. So what do you think about these diet drinks, eh? Say aspartame or Nutrisweet? Check this out. Might make you think twice before you guzzle down some more of that rubbish. Stopping aspartame Poison. and Nutrisweet since 1970. This product is a dangerous product made up of three neurotoxins, any one of which could cause you health problems. Combined, it's really dangerous. The most interesting thing, however, is it's on the market because of politics. When we started attacking NutraSweet back in 1970, we were able to actually keep it off the market for 11 years until 1981. And we had a public board of inquiries convened by the FDA, which ruled that it should not be marketed. The data showed it was likely to be a cancer-causing chemical. This was in 1980. One month after that board ruled, Ronald Reagan was elected president, and Donald Rumsfeld, the president of the company that made NutraSweet, that made aspartame, was on the transition team and arranged for a particular person to be made commissioner of the FDA who overruled the public board of inquiry, overruled all scientists at the FDA who had looked at it, and overruled the public board of inquiry who were outer, outside scientists. So we have here the combination of political toxicity and biological toxicity working together and creating serious problems. After that product went on the market, the number of glioblastomas, the cancerous tumor that showed up in the brains of mice in the studies we were relying on, increased by 10% in the United States and the human population. All in all, it's a horrendous story. Be sure to check everything out about it. And if you feel that you're having any kind of symptoms, get off it for a month and see if they go away. Not to mention the rising Parkinson's disease, neurotoxin. Hmm. Okay, else. this one's for your Americans. Definition of liberty is the right to do whatever you want if you don't violate somebody else. The definition of the common law is the law that you don't have a crime unless you injure somebody else. Notice the similarity between the word liberty and common law? They're the same. A republic is a country that has common law. If you have a statutory law, you're not a republic, you're a democracy. Now say your Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge of allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Did it say statutory liberty? Statutory liberty is liberty from Satan. But we're going to put up a big statute in your harbor upon the ocean and we're going to call it the Statute of Liberty, which is really the Colossus of Rhodes. 
which is the lawmaker of the sun god Ra. And you can all end your prayers in Amen, which happened to be Ra's first name, Amen Ra. You all assume that when you pray to God to say Amen, you're praying to the Creator God. You assume the word Lord carved on your temples means the Creator Lord, not. You assume the United States is the United States of America, not. You assume them to be your government, they're not. As we walk around claiming to be U.S. citizens, I think the harvest is going to be very close. I personally don't see the difference. <clears throat> These people have stolen everything, including your birthright. <coughs> They've stolen your marriages. Who gave the government a right to be a contract party in the marriage between man and wife? With a contract of chattel for the children? Who gave them that right? Who gave them the right to marry us, period, with their phony contract? They don't have the right. In common law, you get married by opening the Bible up. Two witnesses in common law. Do you think the settlers, when they arrived back years ago to settle the West, arrived in Utah and California and looked up the BLM to claim land? The land belongs to God. And any person with the right of liberty has a right to move on any unappropriated land and take it for himself. As long as he violates nobody, he has the right of liberty. He has a right to claim the land in the name of God. So when Nevada joined the Union, the citizens were all asked to vote by statehood a thing called a disclaimer clause, where they forever disclaimed all the unappropriated lands. Now, I thought that might be a, a quick claim deed from the people to the U.S. corporate government. It's not. What were the citizens really saying? They were saying, we forever surrender our unappropriated lands to the United States. What they were really saying was, we won't claim anymore because we don't have any rights pursuant to God. We're judicially dead. Because the United States phony corporation constitution says they can only own 10 miles square. Even their phony constitution says that. They can't take that land. And one of the old Supreme Court rulings um, the Supreme Court ruled that anything not ratified or anything even ratified by consent or anything given can't be ratified by consent if it's not approved by the Constitution. That would have been uh, New York versus the United States, the 76th Supreme Court ruling. So they do not own the public lands. The people of this room own the public lands. But if I put you people on an island and I say, okay, there's Fred and, Fred and Harry here, and you both have the rights from God to claim this island. You each have half right now. And Harry gives Fred a bowl of soup, and he surrenders his birthright. Now it all belongs to Harry or whoever, okay? And the point is, none of the people in this room are citizens. You are fictitious, dead, corporate members with no judicial rights to claim your land, your birthright. They've stolen your, your marriage. They've stolen your car. They've stolen your boat. They've stolen everything. You don't belong here. You're, these people run around saying, I'm going to vote for Helen Chenowitz for U.S. Congress. Well, why do I give a damn who runs for U.S. Congress? I don't live in the U.S. I've never lived in a 10-mile square. I want absolutely no part of it. Absolutely no part of it. I don't want to participate in the fraud. I don't want to participate in the lies or the, or the creation of any more phony democracy. I found there's two Supreme Courts. There's the Supreme Court of the United States, fraud, and there's the Supreme or Supreme Court of the United States. Oh, that's the correct one. The U.S. Supreme Court is the fraudulent one. I found there's two district courts. There's the district court of the United States, and there's the U.S. district court. 
There's two of everything, two of you, two of your names. You know, uh, I was attempted, um, they attempted to sue me, some of the most prestigious law firms in the country, for slander. I informed them, some things I said weren't very pleasant. I informed them that they had the wrong person because that wasn't my name. And if they could fix my name, I would answer the lawsuit. And so they ignored me, and they served me again. This time they put my Christian name on the outside of the envelope with my dead name inside the envelope, and I accused them of mail fraud. I gave them 10 days to respond, and then they surrendered. <laughs> and that was the clerk of court surrendered this time because they were trying to drag me into court. So we beat, we beat the um, one law firm works for the ADL, Anti-Defamation League, and they surrendered on the name. And the next law firm was another prestigious law firm out of Tennessee, and they surrendered. And I just don't want to participate in U.S. lawsuits either. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Okay, this is the one I talked about before. There's a, I don't know if it's going to talk, I can't remember here, but it's the correlate. Anyway, it's about the Queen, the Druids connection. Let's have a listen here. The House of Windsor has attempted to censor just rare Trying to get this Looking at incredibly rare footage that the House of Windsor has attempted to censor just prior to her coronation as Queen of England, the Princess Elizabeth was initiated into the Welsh Druid order. The Queen wore a green robe to signify her rank in the order, known as Vaith or Ovaith. The Vaiths had the role of seers, similar to the oracles of ancient Greece. It's very interesting to see these pictures because 99% of people out there assume the House of Windsor is a Christian royal family. This suggests otherwise. Very curious, eh? The old dru Druids. Yeah. All right, let's have a listen. Anything that, what's this one about? Anything that petroleum-based plastics or fossil fuel can be used for hemp seed can readily and cheaply come as a renewable placement. This only goes for a minute. Let's have a listen. What this guy's got to say here. To have made Henry Ford more famous than the Model T. The car that didn't, Henry Ford, Henry the car that should have made Henry Ford more famous than the Model T. The car that didn't just run off of him, but was also made out of him. And the super lightweight plastic material was 10 times harder than steel. You can see Ford demonstrating it with a crowbar there. Of course, the parasites decided that such a economical friendly car that would literally come from the ground wasn't near as much of a profitable leech off of us as the petroleum-based products and fuels. Amongst the thousands of products made from hemp, one of the most extraordinary is Henry Ford's plastic car. Built in 1941, it contains cellulose fibers derived from hemp, sisal, and wheat store. The plastic was lighter than steel, yet could withstand 10 times the impact without denting. We also heard when he was um, in the glove box of his cars when he started producing them, I think he had the book called The Wandering Jew. Very interesting. 
was a little bit Jew-wise, apparently, back then. They didn't like that. Um, I've only got... I'm just trying to find this other one because I'm running out of time. Yeah, this one. This is interesting. I'm going to actually just got a bottle to try this, start doing this protocol myself. Have a listen to this. I'm making this video to show you how I use the peroxide inhalation therapy. I've been using peroxide inhalation therapy now for over five years, and I have not gotten the flu or even a cold since I started using this, this therapy. We're going to be good for asthma as well. I inhale six pumps of 3% food, uh, 3% peroxide twice a day. I get that mist in my lungs, and I'll show you how to do that. I want to make sure you buy the right peroxide. Do not buy food-grade peroxide to do this. Just buy regular old 3% peroxide that you get in the drugstore. Remember that too for any therapies with peroxide, whether it's foot spas or whatever you're doing with it. and Just use the 3%. Don't use anything over that. The bottle should last. Oh, he says the bottle's going to last about a year, but um, more studies show that it actually oxidizes or whatever you call it within about four months roughly after you open the bottle so if you're going to buy it try not to buy a big bottle of it because you might end up um, turning it to virtually nothing so just something to look out for unless you could probably seal it or quickly put it in the containers i'm not sure but yeah i damn more bought bloody two liters of the stuff before i realized after studying it a bit more that yeah apparently after the oxygenizers it within yeah about four months they say so it's just something to be wary of too you might have it in your cupboard for a couple of years and it might just be useless A good little pump too you can get like from your chemistry you know, those ones that you clean your glasses with those little light mist sprays that's what i'm actually going to use i've got a little one of them and um i've cleaned it out and what have you and i'm going to fill them up and start tomorrow with this and it'll be interesting to see what happens i don't care if you use one breath three breaths six breaths it doesn't really matter it's just six pumps six times a day if you are symptomatic if you don't have any symptoms, I just do it morning and night, six pumps. I'm going to show you how I do that. I exhale all the air. That was six pumps on one breath. Some people can't do it on one breath. I'll do it on two breaths, three pumps on each breath. I sort of want to get sort of like a bronchitis now and test this right out because I think it makes all the sense in the world. You're giving yourself virtually pure oxygen, which is great for your body, you know. They say a lot of tumours and cancers are caused from lack of oxygen. There might be something a little bit deeper to look in with this for sure. Six pumps. I think if you do this, you'll be amazed at how much it decreases the bacteria and viral count in your body. I've had no side effects. I've been doing this for over five years, and the results have been absolutely fantastic. Thank you, and have fun with that. I sure will be, my friend. I sure will be. And guess what? We have come to the end of the broadcast. That's right. We have, we have, we have. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> Uncle Frog in my throat. 
So I will catch us all in the next episode of Strange Days, as usual. There is no doubt about that. And you all take care out there. And thanks for joining me on the journey. Hope you got something out of it. Ila Kesh. Amazing grace inside a 120-year-old cathedral.
This is the music guru, he's called. He'll be on my show in a couple of weeks, apparently. If I can line him up all right. The conspiracy music guru. You can check him out on YouTube. 